Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. These are books that you can listen to on headphones, on speakers, in your car, on the way to work, whenever you're killing time. You can be reading a book by having someone read it to you. Do you understand how that works? Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You got to spell it out the traditional way. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Go get a free audio book. Listen to it. Enrich yourself. Make yourself smarter. They have over, they have hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from. Possibly millions. Audibletrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me making sounds in a room. This is episode 299. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. Thanks for being here. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, i got a great show for you today. Dan Sean is my guest. He is the uh, acclaimed author of several books, including uh, Among the Missing, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. And uh, his other titles include the story collections, Stay Awake, uh, and then another one called Fitting Ends. And his novels include Await Your Reply, and uh, the other is entitled You Remind Me of Me. So I'm very excited to have Dan here. It's a real thrill, and I'm going to be talking to him momentarily. Before we begin, uh, I do want to uh, complain a little bit about Twitter, (laughs) as if I haven't done that enough already on this show. It's a common theme for me. For anybody who's listened uh, to this program for any number of months or even years, you know that I struggle with this. You know that it's uh, difficult for me managing my relationships with social media. I quit Facebook a long time ago. I still use it for like, you know, this podcast and for the nervous breakdown, but I don't use it on a personal level. The only one that I really use is Twitter. And even that is torturing me. And uh, what I've done lately or what I've done most recently Uh, to make things better, is I have tried a new experiment. This is my at Brad Listy account. So 
you know, if you follow me there, you know that like, uh, I think it was last year I started this thing where the only thing I did was retweet. And when I retweeted, I retweeted thematically. So I would retweet like in, in, you know, binge fashion, all tweets associated with like a certain theme. So for example, if, if people, uh, were misusing, uh, words like your and your, like Y-O-U-R versus Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, if I could find tweets where people had made that mistake, which annoys me, I would retweet those in mass. I don't know if that makes sense. Some of you liked it. I actually had people who really liked my retweeting. A lot of people just unfollowed <laughs> or uh, emailed me angrily asking me what the fuck I was doing. But I did that for a while. And then I, I went back to a uh, normal Twitter where I was communicating as myself, trying to uh, entertain myself, trying to entertain uh, my followers, trying to keep in touch and what have you. And then uh, I don't know. I just get, I get frustrated because like I don't have time to sit there and, uh, do, do the work necessary to fill the feed with decent stuff. And, uh, some people, I think it comes more naturally to them. For me, it's a struggle. And so, uh, I got this idea. I hatched an idea with, uh, my web developer guy who designed the nervous breakdown. He's a very good uh, technological mind. And I said to him, like, is there any way to automate this? Can I just automate my Twitter? Can I just like give it a bunch of text and have it crawl that text and then just spit out uh, tweets. And I, and I believe this is called a bot in Twitter parlance. I asked him if he could create me, uh, you know, an, an original personal Twitter bot that would just tweet for me. Like I want to outsource this to a machine so that I don't have to, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And he said that he could. And then uh, I hired him to do that. And he built me a bot. <laughs> so then, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge was what, well, what do I have it say? And what I decided upon was I would, you know, go crawl the internet and I went to, uh, you know, uh, message boards and sites devoted to, uh, hallucinogenic experiences. And I grabbed text and then I have instructed the bot or the bot is now programmed to crawl that text, reconstitute it and spit out tweets under my name. So if you've been following me and wondering, uh, what I am on, <laughs> and this is over like the last two weeks, uh, I'm coming clean here. There's a bot tweeting for me now. I don't have to think about it anymore. Uh, though I do check it because now I'm wondering like, do people, people must think I'm crazy. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't consider this. I was so fixated on the idea of automation that, uh, I didn't consider like, well, wait a minute. Maybe people in, uh, in my personal and professional life, they might be concerned about my mental health. So I just want to go on the record and say, uh, I'm not on ayahuasca. I'm not wandering around naked or whatever the, uh, the Twitter has been saying on my behalf. I'm just tired of trying to sit there and, and, uh, come up with stuff. I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to make my life simpler while at the same time entertaining my followers. And the truth is that my Twitter feed has never been more active. I have it set to tweet like, you know, eight or 10 times a day. I think that's enough. That might even be too much, <laughs> but you know, I experiment. It's another experiment. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I paid to have this thing built. I feel like I should use it. If you have any suggestions for uh, what I should be tweeting, I need text. 
you know? That's the hard part. I need to, you know, I have to create these documents with all this random text in it, and then you sort of feed it to the bot, and then the bot does its thing. So if you have any ideas, you can email me, letters at otherppl.com, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll use it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, once again, is Dan Sean. Uh, if you haven't read him, read him. His work is superb. His humor is dark. And uh, I'm just very excited to get a chance to pick his brain. So here we go, folks. This is my conversation with Dan Sean. I am in the kitchen of my lovely Cleveland Heights home. Uh, and I'm making gazpacho. I'm currently grinding pepper into a bowl of tomatoes and uh Etc. I don't think I've I don't, um, I don't think I've ever had anybody cook while I've talked to them. This is a first for the show. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Well, so, I'd like to I, I like to, to to be different. Well, and it also I mean I, th- I feel like this uh, this I mean this is a very sophisticated thing to be. I mean I, I wouldn't know the first thing about making gazpacho. Like, are you a cook? Do you like to cook? I do. And my um, my older son, who is twenty four, is home for a week. Um, so this is something that he particularly likes. Um, so yeah, uh, he's on his way to Peru, uh, where he's, he's got a job, um, with, uh, with, uh, some, something to do with birds. Okay. I thought you were going to say like a shaman or something, but either way, you know, no, no, it's, it's, he's actually, he's actually, um, uh, a wildlife guy. Okay. Cool. That sounds fun. Yeah. So I got to ask you. Yeah, well, it's not, it's not exactly fun for me because he just told me last night that he doesn't know when he'll be able to be in touch with me. Um, oh, right. And I will not be able to know whether he's alive or not for, for several months. Oh, God. Um, so that's a little anxiety provoking. But um, Are you going to go, go down there to visit? No. No. Okay. No. Um, I'm going to be locked in my study for the next few months trying to... Um, finish a novel so okay well i want to get to that i gotta, um, I gotta ask you like just because you, you mentioned you're in cleveland uh like is it are you a lebron fan are you going crazy are you are there, is, you know no i'm not going crazy but i you know I'm, I'm glad for people who are um and that's super for them but yeah i i was i was i was too hurt i don't forgive right you know i gotta say this and and i don't want to spend too much time on sports because I feel like only a, a small percentage of my listeners give a shit, but 
uh, I'm a Packers fan, and like the whole Brett Favre thing. Uh, right. Like, everyone's talking about like bringing him back and retiring his number, and I'm like, fuck that, no way. <laughs> like he's yeah, he, absolutely he, not. He, he totally lost me, I, and I mean, like I'm a forgiving he's person. He's a betrayer. Yeah, exactly. He's a huge betrayer. Yeah, and I just like I don't understand. Like, look, I wish him well in his life, but like I'm not gonna like you know cheer and like you know draw a, a number four on my cheek or whatever. You know, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I don't even wish him well in his life. <laughs> Actually, I wish him nothing but bad things. Um, so, okay, so are you from Cleveland? Are you an Ohio guy, or is that some place? No, you're... I grew up in I, I grew up in Nebraska, um, in in the far western corner of Nebraska, um, in a small town of about twenty people that was outside of the of the larger metropolis of Sydney, which is about six thousand. Jesus, that sounds like uh, it sounds sort of like, uh, well, I don't know, like a Bruce Springsteen album or sort of bleak. I'm, 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 right. I'm, I'm imagining. Yeah. I'm, well, ima- I'm imagining meth. I don't know if that's uh, too dark, but no, no, I don't. I don't think too much meth, but yeah, but, um, not not super great orthodontia. <laughs> um, and yeah, most of the people that lived in the town were my relatives. Okay, so super small town. Yeah, I think it was, like I said, it was about twenty people. And what, like, were your were your folks? And you were were you adopted? Did I read that? I think I did. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. right. So you were adopted, and your what did your folks do? Are they farm people? Um, no, my grandparents were farmers, uh, but my my dad was an electrician. Okay. Uh, a, a, a construction worker, electrician. Uh, my mom was a stay at home mom. All right. And you back were, in the day when that happened. Yeah, exactly. That's like a dying breed. And and uh, you uh, you were adopted from infancy. Uh, yeah, I was about, uh, let's say six months when they got me. Okay. So I was like, you know, I was, I was like the, the, the last puppy in the litter. <laughs> um, but I, I, I have no memory of it. None. Okay. And when did you find out that you were adopted? Pretty much from the beginning, you know, I mean, that was, it was the, the, well, that was the, the, um, the way things got, went, went back then was that they, they told you that, you were you were chosen. You know, it's almost like being Jewish. Um, <laughs> you were chosen that you were special, um, and you know. Then you then you know sort of it it got laid out slowly, kind of rolled out slowly. Um, but yeah, they they didn't they didn't hide it from you back then. I don't think. I mean, are you supposed to? Like, I don't even know what the protocol is because my niece. Well, is I a- mean, I think I think like prior to, I mean, there, there was there was like there were different sort of psychological profiles for it. I think, like in the fifties and 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 before that, it was common for people not to not to tell the kid until they were older, until they were teenagers, and then they realized that that might cause trauma. Yeah, right. And trust issues. Um, <laughs> right. So, so then you know, then it was like, uh, then they decided that they should you should you should learn from an early age, um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of secrecy surrounding. Um, you know the adoption that was that was happening back in the '60s and '70s. So I don't have like access to my original birth certificate. Um, I there was no um, information about my birth parents, although I have since found and met them. Oh, you did. Okay, I was going to uh, ask. I was going to ask. So you know, do you know the the narrative or the story of how you wound up in Nebraska? With how your... I came to be? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. High school. 17-year-old and 15-year-old backseat of a car. That was, that's the narrative. Wow. 
Um, cheerleader and football player, though. Okay. So, you know, I mean, it, it is a Bruce Springsteen song. Right. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, and then, you know, then she got sent away to a home for unwed mothers. They never got back together. He pined for her forever. She was like, fuck you. Um, I hate you. Uh, so that was the, that was basically the narrative. Okay. And then were they in Nebraska as well? They were in Iowa. They were Iowa teens. Okay. Well, yeah. That's like, it's good stock though, right? That's American. Yeah. Yeah. No, Hardy. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So how did you, how did you, I'm always fascinated by this. Like, you know, when, uh, adopted children find their birth parents and then get to go meet them, like how to, a, how did you find them? And then B, what was the meeting like? Well, um, this was back in the day of days of Usenet. If you remember, um, you may be too, too young for that, but, um, it was in the mid nineties, early, early to mid nineties. And there was a listserv, uh, for, um, adopt adoptees who were searching. And, um, I met a lot of very cool people on that listserv. Um, and many of them helped me and, and sort of gave me insights into how to go about the sort of like searching through the bureaucracy and doing the investigation and everything. Um, and so I was able to figure out my, um, uh, I was able to get non-identifying information, and then I was able to get to through that. I was able to find my mother's last name, and because she was growing up in a pretty small town, I was able to figure out who it was, and then to trace her through the magic of um, Google and so on and so forth. And uh, then I called her, Whoa. and yeah, so and she was sort of not all that cool with that. Um, and then, but she did give me, you know, like sort of talked to me for a, for a while, um, and did, and, and told me who my father was. Um, and then I called him and he was more cool with it. Um, and so I ended up meet, going to meet him. He lives in Wisconsin, um, to meet him and my half siblings. And I've been sort of in contact with them since the, since I was about 30, some mid nineties. Okay. And so do you, um, and did you meet your mother too? You did meet your mother. Eventually. I never met my mother. I talked to her on the phone that once. That's it. And she was like, "That's yeah." She was like, "This is the last time," because she had she had really kind of not uh, told anybody, including like her husband and children. Oh. So it was like a really big sort of it was a big secret for her. Oh. And you know, after I left, you know, after I read more of the literature, I realized it was probably, you know, it would have maybe been smart to to approach it a little um a little less like um bull in the china closet as i you know because i was like called her up i'm like hey you know <laughs> well what are you gonna do you know i wouldn't know what else to do i mean and by the way did she because like you know if it, if it's a secret did she answer the phone or did like her husband or somebody else and you're like hey this is dan like uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what, or did, did you just luck out and she picked up? Yeah, it's it's weird if like if if it happened to be the husband or whatever, and you were like, "Hey, is Lisa there?" <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, as it turned out, she was divorced and um, her kids were grown, so she was she was living by herself. Okay, she was. Wow, that's strange. Like, I, I you know, I guess it's just different for different folks. But I would imagine, like, if I were a woman. And I'd had a child and, and, and given the child up for adoption that I would want to at least meet. But sometimes it's too painful or they just can't deal. Or Yeah, um, you know, and, and that, was, that, was, that was just uh, not in the cards. Um, and, well, I mean, it may still be because, um, this, I, of course, this was 20 years ago. But she was like, don't call me. I, I, it, you know, I'll call you. So, she, I mean, she may, I know she's still alive. So she may still call me. Yeah. 
You never know. She may get around to it. Does she know who you are and that you're I mean, a, she's, a writer and stuff? I mean, does she know about your book? I think so. I think so. Um, I kind of hope that she hasn't read them, though. <laughs> I think it's good. I, I mean, have, that, especially, I would, really, I would really hope that she hasn't read You Remind Me of Me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I feel like that would be irresistible. You know, it would be irresistible. Mm. How could you possibly not read those books? I mean, it would just be, you know, they're right there. Uh, at the bookstore, or you know, right, easy to get. It would be hard to, for me at least, to to not go and read them. Well, you know, it's it's hard to say. Read those Amazon reviews. So, See what happens. You know, maybe somewhere in there. Right. <laughs> so, what about uh, when you went and met your dad and your half siblings? Like, was there a, you know, was it was it an easy meeting? Was there like a strange, eerie biological? connection you know feeling of there, yeah there was there was there was all that stuff i mean i look a lot like him um and uh he's kind of uh you know like an old hippie in some ways uh so he was very you know he was very like casual and welcoming um uh he goes his he goes by huck and that tells you a lot about him yeah uh <laughs> um and so yeah that was that was uh, it was actually pretty. It, it was it was pretty mellow. Although you know, the process of driving there was very. I was I was uh, having lots of anxiety attacks on the way. Oh, I can imagine. That's so intense. Like I have a buddy who met his mother when we were in college, or just out of college, and uh, I was sort of privy to it. Like he told me he was doing it, and I kind of like was talking to him about it. And then he flew to New York, and it was like this lunch meeting, and uh, you know they were supposed to meet for lunch, and he gets there early. And it's just like he's telling me about the fidgeting and like there was a bowl of fruit right. sitting out. And he's like picking up the fruit and just like playing with it. And then he turns around and there's a woman standing there who looks exactly like him. <laughs> it's uh, oh, my God. It's intense. Yeah. You know, it's intense. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, OK. So growing up in Nebraska in this kind of, mm -hmm. like, you know, remote um, uh, rural, you know, upbringing, like what kind of child were you? Uh, did, you know, were you demonstrating writerly tendencies from a young age? Do you think that the fact that, uh, you know, you were raised in this environment, you know, helped to, uh, send you in that direction or. Well, I, you know, I think so to some extent. Um, I mean, I, I, neither of my parents were like had graduated from high school and they, you know, they were not, they were not bookish at all. Um, and so it was very, I mean, I, I think it was clear from an early age that I was going to be different from the rest of the, of the family. Um, and that I was bookish, um, and, uh, kind of, and kind of weird. Um, I, I did a lot of, uh, like wandering around pretending, um, and, and had very, very involved games. Um, but I also was like, you know, uh, you know, the bookmobile came to our town every week. Do you know what that is? The bookmobile. I do. Yeah. Uh, um, so I would get like 10 books and, uh, uh, you know, I remember very specific like summers where I, I like, like where I'd read, you know, like I read, you know, to kill a mockingbird and, uh, uh Ray Bradbury and Shirley Jackson and, you know, Tolkien and, you know, all of these, you know, just sort of a wide range of stuff that, um, that was, you know, so intense for me that it still like has this, you know, this, this part of my, my brain that it, that it, that it's, that's, it's still clinching. Um, but in, in, and, in, in no one, no one was pushing you like you were doing this on your own. 
Yeah, nobody. I mean, in, in fact, sort of the opposite. You know, like if if I got caught somewhere reading a book, they'd find something for me to do because they thought I was, you know, like wasting time. <laughs> um, so I would have to hide places to read. <laughs> but you know what? That actually, I think that actually incentivizes ki- a kid to read because then it feels more like a rebellious act as opposed to like this drudge work right. that you've got to do. You know? Right. Right. There was there was really nobody screaming. You should read a book. Um, and, you know, my mom would be like, "Why don't you watch TV?" Why don't you, or why do you? Why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's better for your eyes. And she and you had no interest in TV as a child. Well, we only got three channels. Okay. Um. It was like PBS, NBC, and CBS, and there was there was really I mean I love TV, uh, but there was not much on most of the time. It was pre-cable. Yeah, it was it was all pre-cable, okay. and um, you know like the sort of thing where you had to fiddle with the the television antenna to get a to get a decent signal, and you know stand there holding it um, if you really wanted it to be clear. Right. But your dad was an electrician. He could have figured that out. Come on. <laughs> right now. <laughs> We had like he was an electrician, but he didn't bring he didn't bring his work home with him. Let's oh. put it that way. Okay. So did you have, <laughs> did you have siblings? Did you have siblings? Um, yeah, I had uh, a, a younger brother and a younger sister. Both ad- uh, they were they were they were they were three years younger than six years younger. So it was like not particularly um, uh, like close sibling relationship. Were, were they biological um, or were they adopted as well? They were also adopted. They were also adopted. Um, but my, but my younger brother was, was like, um, was sort of the boy and my younger sister was sort of the girl. And I was kind of like the, the weird hermaphrodite that didn't like fit into any category. Meaning you didn't like, you weren't like the, like, did you take to sports or do like the normal? I was not much of a sports guy. I was not into hunting or fishing that much. Um, I, you know, I didn't like to help with, um, fixing cars. Uh, that kind of thing. So it was, it was, you know, I, I, I had to do all those things, but it was, I was, I was not like my brother was like totally into dad, let's go hunting. And, you know, I was like somebody that like cried when the deer got shot. Yeah, me too, man. I do not. So it was, I was not, I was not fun to go hunting with. Well, and I figured too, in that, in that context in like rural Nebraska, like hunting is part of the social fabric, right? I mean, it's like what people do. Yeah, no, I mean, we we actually had to take gun safety as part of uh, as part of junior high school. It was like you know, along with like metal shop and you know, uh, phys ed, there was like gun safety. So it was like really part of the culture. Wow. So, but you weren't into it. And no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I wasn't real into it. Um, I still am not like super into hunting or or I mean, fishing's okay. Yeah. I but can't. It's, it's kind of boring. I can't. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to go. I like the idea of like fly fishing and like wading out into the. You know, this is all just. Purely, mm-hmm. This is all just purely like conceptual. I don't do this, <laughs> but I like. Yeah. yeah, I like the idea of it. But then, then the catching of the fish and the hook in the mouth. It's like, what am I doing? Like, why this is? Yeah, I just feel like I'm abusing. Yeah, this and like animal. you know, like like killing them and taking their guts out and all that. Right. Like, no. Yeah. I'm not into it. So okay. No. So. Um, the, the the book mobile you know kind of like uh you know developing an outsider identity in this community uh were you happy i mean was there any element of it that was like americana and then to continue with the uh huck reference like huck finish or anything like that or was it well yeah i mean i mean there was a, there was a lot of there was a lot of nature stuff i mean because it was rural um and i did i did spend a lot of time outside a lot of time camping um and 
you know, both my grandparents lived on either side of us. So there was that, that kind of like big extended family stuff. Um, I would say it was, you know, like Americana in a kind of, um, you know, like lower middle class way. Um, so, you know, adults sitting outside the garage, listening to music, drinking beer, kids like running wild into the night. Um, that's not so bad. And, you know, not wearing shoes all summer and that, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would I would say it was not um, – much of my childhood was was, 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 very, was very pleasant. Um, some of it was not, but, you know, that, that had to do with um, a lot of mental illness in, in, in the extended family. Like dep- so, what, depression and stuff? Um, well, there was depression, there was alcoholism, there was schizophrenia. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But, you know, I find, I mean, um, I think it's, uh, it, it, it can cluster more in certain family lines. I mean, you know, it's, it can be way more intense uh, from family to family. But yeah. in any family, you dig around enough, you're going to find some, some right. of that, you know. And and I think especially like pr- earlier generations, like we're before, you know, pre-psychiatric treatment and then especially out in the in the country, like people aren't getting proper, right. properly diagnosed or medicated. I, I was just reading. Um, I mean, this is totally random, but I was reading. Some, you know, it was like an interview with uh, Maria Bamford, that comedian, she's super funny. Mm-hmm. She was just talking about like mental illness in her family and how like her grandmother essentially lived her entire life in an attic. Um, and, yeah. And like only after the fact, which is so sad, but like only after the fact, they're like, we think she was depressed. You know. <laughs> 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 Poor woman. This poor woman spent like literally just never went outside. Sort of like Emily Dickinson without the poetry, you know, or whatever. Right. Right. So. Um, right. But like, at what point? But yeah, I mean, you know, like there, there was there was stuff that you kind of knew about and stuff that you didn't know about. Um, and you know, it was the seventies, so there was a lot of, um, uh, of, you know, I like I had I had cousins who were in their teens, and there were and there was a lot of wildness. Um, that went on during those years, um, you know, just uh, sex and drug use and, you know, like just sort of crazy teenage um, unsupervised stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a, I got a, I got a good range of experience. I mean, I, it wasn't completely like um, Dennis Johnson, um, but it also wasn't completely, um, you know, the yearling either. Yeah. So somewhere in the middle. That's a good place to be though. Yeah. You know? Taste. Yeah, no. I mean I, I I think I got I think I got a good range of experience to, to draw on as a writer. So meaning that you partook a little bit but didn't get too deeply involved? I mean, you know, you were nor- normal. Yeah, I mean I mean I no, I was I was actually sort of like the, the one who, who just who was just observing a lot of a lot of this. I didn't partake in much of anything. That's excellent. Um, that's good. I was I was really much of an out I was really pretty much an an outsider. For uh, um, for most of it, yeah. Well, and I think too, like if you can, if you have the, if you have it in you to like be the observer, and you can manage that socially and you know intellectually or whatever, you know, because it's hard for, I think it's hard sometimes not to to jump in. Right. Well, you know, like I, I mean, I, I, I was kind of like the ten year old who was hanging out with the sixteen and seventeen year olds who were, um, ah. you know, like smoking pot and shooting up and um, listening to, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and, you know, um, I was just watching what they were doing. But, you know, but that, that, I think that's kind of what I'm driving at is that if you can get 
an opportunity to actually see the effects of that without being in the middle of it, you start to realize like, uh, you know, I need to, I need to be a little bit careful. These people are acting like assholes or whatever, you know, or they're, yeah. or, you know, you're around a bunch of drunk, right. you know, if you're around a bunch of drunk teenagers, uh, you know, I'm sure it becomes clear pretty quickly if you're not drunk yourself that they're acting like jackasses or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, I mean, it, it did sort of like, um, uh, have a, have like a pretty huge influence on my work. I was just, somebody was just, um, pointing out to me, um, that like there's, there's major drug use in like every novel that I write. And it's like, Oh yeah, I guess there is. That's funny. Well, you know, but it's, it's, I mean, in addition to being like really, um, I mean, it's a powerful experience when you're that when you're that young. But it's also if you're 10 years old and you're watching people shoot up when they're 16, it's scary. It's gonna it's gonna stay with you. Yeah. You know, you're seeing people yeah. kind of you know take themselves uh, apart a little bit. I mean, uh, I would imagine that that's something that as a kid uh, shook you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, although I also sort of took it as 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 like basically normal. Um. I didn't have a lot of experience with like, um, like nice families <laughs> <laughs> that was just until what... I went to college. And then I was like, Oh wow. So nobody in your family committed suicide. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So that brings me to my next question because you know, you're sort of an outsider. Um, you know, you can feel that you're a little bit different. You're, you're going to the bookmobile, you're reading these books in secret. Um, like one of the things that uh, I was reading about you, which I found charming, uh, and also a little bit, uh, unbelievable is that you were like submitting to the New Yorker as a teenager. <laughs> yes, like, I was, like I you, was, you were precocious and you were, I mean, you were that kid. Like, you, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, go through that phase, but not that early. Right. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things, one of the weird things that happened, this is, I, I mean, I, I've written about this before, but, um, when I was in seventh grade, our teacher, had us um, write letters, like it was just an exercise to write a letter to our favorite author. Um, and I wrote a letter to Ray Bradbury. And then I went to the library and I found his address and I sent it to him. And he start, he wrote back to me. Um, and we had this long correspondence um, that lasted for about four years. Um, and one of the things that he said was, "Oh, you should just start sending your work out. Send it to, to wherever you wherever you think it will it will it will um, it, it will it will have a chance." And so, you know, I start, I sent it, I sent stuff out to, you know, like, uh, the New Yorker and, you know, cause that's, uh, where, cause that's, where you'll, that's where you'll have, that's where you'll have a chance at 16. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, obviously, you know, like the only places I, I, I knew of, um, and I, I ended up sending a, a story to try quarterly. Um, and the editor there, Reginald Gibbons wrote back to me and he's like, well, this is not, uh, this is not adult work, but I think it's very good, and you should consider going to Northwestern. Um, and I actually ended up going to Northwestern because of that letter that he wrote. Um, so that was another, you know, sort of, I mean, I, you know, like I had this sort of um, guardian angel or something that was, you know, like helping me along in, in, in ways that, you know, seems slightly supernatural now that I think back on them. Well, I was just going to say, you know, like, who, just... who gets to have a correspondence with Ray Bradbury and then have like a college professor write you um, right. and tell you 
come to my school. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, well, but you know, I, I've seen it in different forms on this show, like talking to writers and I'm always curious, like how, you know, how did it happen? And it's usually like a teacher or somebody like prodding them along and like, you know, I imagine you're a, a teenager and you're like literally, you know, your author hero suddenly is like your pen pal and he's telling you to submit. I mean, that's a powerful like, pat on the back, you know, and then to have this. Yeah. Uh, and then, to, you know, the, uh, Reginald Gibbons writing you back and saying, come to Northwestern. I mean, like, w were you thinking as a teenager, like, I'm going to get out of this place. I'm going to go to the big city. I want there's more to the, you know. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, that's why I mean, that, that's that's why that's why I was reading The New Yorker. Um, I'd go to the library to read The New Yorker because I thought I would I would learn sophistication. I actually understood almost none of it. The comics were completely beyond me. Um, I remember reading a like um, uh, a Malamud story and having like zero idea what was going on, uh, partially because they had no idea what Jews were. <laughs> <laughs> but where are you going to get that in Nebraska? I mean, come on. But yeah, um, you know. Um, and, you know, funnily, funnily, no, um, you know, hilariously enough, um, I ended up being um, married to, to a Jewish woman and, um, you know, like her mother lived with us for, for many years and, you know, we kept kosher and I did, you know, did basically everything except convert. So it, the New Yorker was good practice. Yeah. So, so you get, but to... I didn't know it at the time. So, okay. So then you, you, how did you get to Northwestern? Like I'm imagining your folks in Nebraska, um, couldn't afford to send you to a school like Northwestern. Yeah, no, I, I, um, um, I, I pretty much did it all myself, but I got a Pell Grant, um, which, which was, you know, back in the day when, when there were, when there were such things, I think they, I think they're, they're kind of like hard, harder to get now or something, but, um, they're, they're for a lower income, uh, for lower income people. Um, and so I got this grant, um, which, which basically allowed me to go, um, and Northwestern itself, uh, gave me, a, gave me a, a lot of scholarship money. Um, so I ended up having a full ride pretty much to Northwestern and, and just paying room and board, which I paid for through, you know, work study and, um, and loans. Well, that's cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, so, it makes me think. It makes me think. Yeah, about and it, it, was, it, it was it was it was one of those things where you know, it was very clear that um, there was going to be no money coming um, or encouragement coming from uh, my parents about going to college. I mean, my, my dad thought I should go, you know, somewhere close like Shadron State or something or or Kearney State, um, and uh, you know, when I told them that I was going to Chicago, they were kind of shocked, but. Um, not uh, encouraging or discouraging. Yeah, I mean, they just had no frame of reference, right? But you know that. But you know the fact that they weren't discouraging is also, uh, you know, a good thing and not necessarily entirely um, normal for for people in their situation. Like I've talked to other people who have been in a similar situation where they're transcending their. In fact, I just had. Um, Letitia Trent on the show and she's from a, you know, had a similar thing happen and, uh, you know, where she was kind of transcending her socioeconomic origins or whatever. And that can be threatening to parents, you know, who don't, you know, who don't want to see their kids move away from them too much, you know, right. not only in terms of like right. physical distance, but also in terms of like economic or educational distance or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, the the the, the one thing that I I do remember is um is grammar and um like really having to change uh the way that I talked when I came home because I did, you know, I did kind of change my accent a little bit once I went to went away to college because you know, people would laugh at me. Um, but Why, uh, what, when I went what did back you have? Home, what kind of accent? Did you had some sort of country accent? Yeah, I mean, just country. I mean, like I used the word "ain't," I, you know, and I, you know, I would, um, I would, you know, like um, drop my G's and you know, like things of that of that nature. Um, and uh, you know, that was. Like if 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 you didn't do that, you were you were putting on airs in a way that was that was that was offensive. <laughs> when I was at home, you know, it was like you you were you were trying to you were you were trying to sound fancy, right? Um, and so I would switch. You know, I would always switch back. And you could switch back. I mean, it was doable. Oh yeah, I mean, I can still switch. I, I mean, I still find myself switching back. But. Um, well, I was going to say, how often do you get back? I mean, are you there? Right? I don't. I don't. I don't very often. I uh, because both my parents have, have, have since passed away, and um, you know, my my siblings, I'm not I'm not super close to. My sister is sort of a born again person um, who you know has has like kind of fiery uh, and to me kind of evil opinions about things. Yeah. <laughs> and my brother's, my brother's a truck driver um, who's, you know, on the road a lot. So I don't see much of him. Uh, so yeah, I don't get back a lot. Um, but when I talk to people on the phone, I, I find, I find that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I often switch back to, to a, a more uh, kind of countrified way of talking. Sure. And then uh, just to, to go back for a second, uh, I forgot to ask you, do you still have those letters from Ray Bradbury? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can probably find it. You could, I mean, I think I, I, I even, um, I did an essay about it and there was something online. There's probably some, there's probably something like a picture of one of the letters online. Okay. He was such a, I mean, he seemed like a, such a nice guy. He was a, cause I mean, I, I, I want to say I've read about him doing similar things and you, you know, he, yeah, was, he, he, was, he was, he was, he was, he was sort of famous for that, um, for encouraging young writers. And the, the guy was like um, insanely prolific. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it was, and you know, I, I, I kind of, um, I ended up like when I went away to college, I ended up kind of hurting his feelings, I think, um, because, you know, he first of all, didn't think I needed to go to college. Um, and I definitely knew that I wanted to go to college and, um, cause he was like, you know, that generation where, Oh, you just start writing and what, 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 what good will college do for you? Um, and then also, you know, like when I went to college, uh, I started taking creative writing classes where, you know, people were like, you know, we don't take genre fiction in this, in this class. Right. And so I sort of, I sort of stopped writing like, um, fantasy and horror and stuff. And, uh, I think that also disappointed him. Uh, so, well, and it's funny too, that to hear you mention him discouraging the idea of college because, you know, generationally he, he came from an age when people could, uh, write short stories and make a living. Like that's so astounding to right. me think about. Like back in the day when like you could sell like two or three short stories a year and like live. <laughs> that's, yeah, uh, that's bananas to even think that there was a time in this country when that was possible. Yeah, no, I know. And you know, I mean, he he like got out of high school and started working for a newspaper. 
So, you know, like there was also that, like journalism was not a college degree sort of thing. Right. And I guess we're going back to that now. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> you no, know, I mean, right. Everyone's a journalist now, but um, why, why was, you know, you know, you're getting this advice from one of your heroes. Um, why did you not take it? What, what was it about college that um, drew you in? Well, I mean, it was it was the whole idea. I mean, there was I was there was nobody in my family that had gone to college. Um, I mean, literally nobody in my entire extended family had gone to college. And you know, the idea of being college educated, of you know, being in an environment where everybody loves learning, um, and haha, of course. You know, that's not necessarily true, but that's what I imagined. And you know, I imagined you know you'd go and people would like talk about books and, uh, um, uh, you know, you'd have these intellectual conversations and, you know, by the time you were out of college, you'd know basically everything. Um, that was my, that was my image of right. it. And right. then, you know, then you, and then you'd get this job that would take you, um, and, you know, you'd, you'd be, uh, you know, you'd be able to buy a house and you wouldn't ever have to worry about, um, uh, people repossessing your, your, your possessions. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. But and you, and you, and you went into it thinking I'm going to be a writer. Um, uh, no, I went into it thinking I was going to be, um, a, uh, screenwriter, actor, and director like Orson Welles. Whoa. Okay. So that was, that was what I thought was going to happen. Okay. So did cinema figure prominently into your childhood as well then? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't have a camera. Yeah. I mean, I, I just loved movies. But I mean, there, there was a theater, and, yeah. there was a theater that you were going to. Yeah, there was a movie theater and there was, um, it was actually, I, I, I grew up during the time of, of, um, of videotapes. So, uh, we had for off and on, we had a, we had a, a VCR, mm -hmm. um, an old VCR that my dad had fixed. Um, so yeah, there were, I, I was really into movies. And what were you thinking? Um, and, you, that, and, and you were going to make like dramatic, thought, like, like like Citizen Kane. Yeah, everything, everything. Um, I, I I tried to see all the Hitchcock and and uh, and uh, and Orson Welles that was available, and you know, I like tried to see all the all the arty movies that I could, um, but I watched everything, and you know, like. I had the idea that I was going to, you know, do I was going to do this writer director thing. I was also going to, I was also going to write novels and poetry on the side. So, um, so no ambition at all. <laughs> no, I mean that, that. And then, and then I, I also thought that um, I would learn how to how to write music so I could write the soundtracks for the movies as right, well. Right. So, um, and how far did that? How far did you get into that before you realized? Like, I think I like uh, prose. Um, I, I did, I did two years in the, in the radio TV film, uh, school, and then I transferred to, um, to, uh, to the college of arts and sciences. Um, and part of it was that I, I started to realize that, that, um, film is a very collaborative medium mm -hmm. and that, and that I wasn't going to probably get to do everything. And that in fact, writing was 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 more of what I really wanted to do because I had the control over everything. Right. And you know, and I and I just liked it. I liked that that aspect better. And what about your reading in college? Because I mean, I, like another thing I read about you, um, you know, before uh, we came on the air was that 
you read as many as a, like a you have you go through like a thousand books a year. Not that you finish them front to back, but that, right. you're, that you're constantly picking at them. I find that interesting um, because I, I kind of read similarly. You go into them, find what you need. You're moving quickly. Um, that's kind of how I am as well. I always have a big stack, but it's rare that I go all the way through one unless it. I was yeah. I mean, I like like I mean I, that was just a habit that I that I brought with me from childhood, which was you know that um, I consumed a lot of books, and I and I continued to do that in in college. Um, although you know at, at the same time you know I joined a fraternity um, and I you know drank a lot of beer and you know so on, um, so that that cut into some of my reading time well, as it will. But you know, that's, that can be, yeah. I feel like you got, I mean, I think it's kind of healthy in a sense to have those years and those times. Right. Uh, right. Right. You know, you can obviously get people into trouble, but, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not something I, I look, I had a similar phase. I don't, I don't look back on it with regret. No, no, not at all. Did you have any, like, um, real, did you have any really like mind blowing experiences with substance in college years that like changed you? Um, no, you know, I never, um, I did, I did, you know, I, I never like got super into, um, anything except pot smoking. Um, you know, I tried a lot of different drugs, but it, was, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, um, I was super into like shrooming or, you know, dropping acid or anything. Right. So, yeah, I mean, um, I you know, I learned that, uh, that, um, writing while high is probably not a great <laughs> practice. An excellent, <laughs> a critical lesson in the life of any writer, you know, like I'm actually, right. I'm, but I'm, yeah, at, I mean, you know, like I, I, I was one of those, I was one of those kids that would, that, and, and you, I mean, if you, if you, if you're a, if you're a creative writing teacher, you know, the type who turns in the, you know, the, 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 the short story that was obviously written while stoned, um, <laughs> the, you know, but I also had very great teachers there um, who were pretty strict. Um, you know, Reginald Gibbons was one of my teachers. Barry Kinsey was one of my teachers. Um, uh, Janet DeSalmier, um, Alan Shapiro. Um, and then uh, my, my, my best teacher was uh, a woman named Sheila Schwartz, who I ended up getting married to. So oh, wow, she right. was the, she was, she was my, my, my like, um, lifetime teacher. Wow. So I didn't realize, I didn't realize that she had been your teacher. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, uh, my, my fiction teacher, um, when I was a uh, junior and senior, um, and we ended up kind of like just falling in love and, uh, we got married the year after I graduated. She must have liked your work. I mean, come on. She did. She really liked it. <laughs> well, I, and I, I want to ask you about her because I've read, you know, you wrote a lovely essay about her on the rumpus. Uh, she passed away a few years ago. Uh, my condolences. Uh, I'm sorry about Thank I'm you. Sorry, I'm sorry to hear that. But, um, you know, I'm married. I have a kid. Uh, you know, I think anybody who is in relationship or who, you know, anybody who's alive um, kind of dreads losing those close to them. And I'm, I'm interested in knowing how that loss uh, has affected you like creatively. Um, yeah. You know, like, do you, cause I, cause I can imagine on the one hand it would make everything seem trivial and just like, Oh, like what a fuck this, you know? And then on the other hand, well, like, does it like, or, or does it make you energized in some way to create and to make, to make stuff while you're here? You know, like how did, how did it affect you that way? Well, I mean, I, I think, um, 
you know, the last book that I wrote while she was alive was Await Your Reply. Um, and she was very central to, to like, just as a reader to that book. Um, and then um, the next book was Stay Awake, which I think is really just sort of a grief book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like a lot of the stories are about grief in, a, in, in various ways. And I think, you know, um, it, you know, the, the loss really informed the stories in, in a lot of ways. Um, and also just sort of the experience of, of being a widow in, in, in informed those stories a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that's, I think it, it, it did transform my work and it also sort of gave me, uh, a way to work through a lot of this stuff in, in, in a, in a, in a fictional way. Like, you know, I, I didn't lose my mind, but I let my characters do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I, I think that was very healthy. <laughs> sure. Better them than, um, better them than you. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, you know, and it was, it was, it was a, it was a very complicated time because my kids were still in high school. Um, so I was like a single parent and, um, my half brother, uh, one of, one of Huck's sons came to live with me for a few years. Um, Why? and he was, he was super troubled and, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I was taking care of him Holy and shit. then, um, and then now, you know, like the last two years I've been, I've been actually living on my own for the first time in my life. Um, and that's been, that's been a trip of its own, you know? Um, and I'm kind of, I'm really kind of digging it. Wow. Um, in, you know, in, 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 you know, like having missed out on all that in my twenties, um, I'm now kind of having, I'm having my twenties now, sure. um, which is kind of cool. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm getting a lot of work done and, and, um, uh, really, uh, enjoying this, this kind of, um, weird freedom as well. Not that I don't miss Sheila enormously all the time, but you know, it's, it is, there is, there is this one thing that I never thought I would experience that I, that I'm, that I'm getting to have. Right. Well, Um, I mean, you guys, so you guys got married right after you finished undergrad. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you yeah. were, you were what? Twenty two years old. I was twenty two. Yeah. Holy cow! And she was and she was a, about a decade older than you. Yeah, she was thirty two. Okay. So what? And and you guys got married. You knew at that time um, that you were going to pursue like the writer professor track. I mean. Uh... Yeah. I mean, what what happened was, um, you know, she she uh, she was at Northwestern just as as a visiting person. Um, then uh we were you know we we uh knocked around chicago for a couple years um then i i got into syracuse um and she followed me there and worked um like as an adjunct in at syracuse um and then she got a job uh at, at cleveland state and we moved here um and so you know by by that time uh we had one baby and um then we had then we had another one like sort of on, on almost immediately after that um and then you know we just settled in cleveland i did you know my various like uh bartending uh you know um worked as a roofer for a while did worked on on uh like as an editorial assistant for a magazine um and then you know eventually 
and also did a lot of like um, I did a lot of the childcare too. Right. So we had you know we had kind of like a you know like a patch together, um, but fun, um, so fucking fun, uh, like early marriage. Yeah. You know we, we just you know we just kind of let things roll and let things happen, and it was really really. Um, adventurous and you, and you I mean it felt like it felt like an adventure well sure and you guys uh, you guys took off to Syracuse uh, and you were getting your MFA there I was yeah I mean it, it, that's what I say now but it was it, it's actually a, a, just an MA okay. back because that's what it was back in the day back in the day so who, um, are, who are your instructors there uh, Tobias Wolf sure. uh, Doug Hunger um, those were the those were the main ones I, I, I took a class with Hayden Carruth which was which was amazing and and you did you feel like what did you submit to get in like how like you know because I, I always I'm always curious as to when um, like people realize their talent or whatever you however you want to put it because you you started so young you know and I think people who yeah um, I had you know I, I like I started publishing I started started publishing stories when I was a senior in in college um, so I had a story in 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 Triquarterly mm-hmm. um, which Gibbons published was the first person to publish uh, me and um i had a story in mss the old uh john gardner magazine oh wow um from from binghamton uh-huh. um and i had i had a story in crazy horse uh that was edited by uh um uh david jouse so i had i had i had had a few publications and those were the ones that i that i submitted for my application um and I just went to the place that gave me the most money because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, pay sure. to go to school. Um, and I was also, it was it, when I, when I, when I signed up for Syracuse, um, Ray Carver was still alive and I really wanted to work with him. Um, but he, he actually died, uh, the August that I arrived in Syracuse, oh. which sucked. Oh. I, I felt particularly wounded by that, but you know, I'm sure he didn't plan right. to do that. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. <laughs> to disappoint me. Right. Um, so how do your how do so, your, how do your stories come to you? Like I mean, and has it changed over the years? Is it is it is there a through line you can see from, um, you know, from book to book or story to story? Is there a similar pattern that you can detect? Well, I mean, I think I start. I, I really start with um, like an image or uh, you know, like a some kind of um, premise. And then I, you know, begin to accumulate stuff around that, you know, like I'll write, I'll, I'll just, I'll just free write a scene and then hope, hopefully that will suggest another scene and, and I'll, I'll get to know the characters more and I'll, I'll start to see some kind of arc. Um, but I, I do it, I, I tend to write in this very manic way, which is, you know, like I have maybe 30 or 40 stories going at once. Whoa. And then, you know, I'll just, I'll just like move back and forth between them. And then, you know, like when, when I'm like, when I'm writing a novel, I've never actually written a novel that has like one narrator. Um, cause I tend to, you know, like I tend to do the same thing with a novel. I'll, I'll like just write pieces of it and hope that they begin to, they begin to come together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's a little bit wasteful. Um, but it's also that, you know, I, I don't plan things out. Um, I don't usually have like a clear idea of where of where a story or a or a novel is going to end, um, or even where it's going to 
you know, where, how, where it's going to be in like 30 pages. Um, and then, you know, then I try to clean everything up in the, um, in the second draft. You're giving, you're giving a lot of hope to people out there listening who are extremely disorganized and manic when, in, in their work habits. <laughs> I mean, 30, but, well, I, I mean, I, the other, I mean, the other thing is I do have a, a pretty good work ethic in that I write every day and, you know, I have like a, a certain, um, like I'm, I'm kind of hard on myself about quantity as opposed to, you know, quality. So I try to get a lot out even, you know, and then hopefully, um, out of the, you know, manure comes, uh, comes a rose. Yeah. So <laughs> are you, are you tracking word count? Like, what do you mean by a lot of page count, word count? Like, do you monitor yourself? Um, I, well, yeah, I mean, I try to, I, 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 I try to do, um, uh, 500 words a day, which isn't that much. Um, but you know, it, 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 it if I can, I can do, if, if I can, I do more. Um, I do a lot of timed writing, um, where, you know, like, instead of just like staring at the page, I just, I have to, you know, like just, um, write nonstop for 20 minutes. Um, and that is, that's very useful to me. Um, because I, I did go like after graduate school, I went into that phase that people often go into where, you know, like, um, there's somebody in your head, usually somebody from your workshop, um, and every time you write a sentence, they say something critical in your head. They're like, oh, that's not really a very good sentence. Or, <laughs> you know, the New Yorker's never going to take this story. <laughs> or, you know, so I, you know like I, I went through this phase where, like, I would just, I would get frozen every time I tried to write. And I had to figure out a way to break that. And the way that I figured was just to do these timed writing where um, you, you know, you, you just set a timer and you have to, you, you have to write whether, whether it sucks or not for, for 20 minutes or half an hour. Um, and that helped me, you know? And like, is it just like, is that something you do at like the start of a session just to get yourself going or? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And you said it, you said, um, you said an actual physical timer. Like, is there, I'm, I'm picturing like a timer that goes off or is it just, you just look at the clock and say, go. Um, no, I, I, there is a timer that goes off. Yeah. It's an egg timer. Wow. Okay. So that's good to know. And then, um, you know, in terms of, you know, getting the work done, you say you're disciplined. Are you working at the same time every day? Because, you know, you, te um, you teach at Oberlin, you, you have kids, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in your life. I'm, I'm up against this. So I'm always curious to know, you know, how do you get so much work done in, in, um, I have a, yeah, I do, I do tend to work about the same time every day and it's usually, um, uh, um, it's usually after midnight. I usually write, write for about, about, um, I try to get all my work done by midnight and then I write for three hours. Um, if I can, if I, if I can, I write for three hours, um, uh, from midnight to three, um, pretty much every night. Wow. And then do you, what time do you wake up in the morning? Um, hopefully at, you know, like nine or later, usually like when I'm teaching, I have to wake up at nine. So, um, I can, I'm, I'm actually really fine with six hours of sleep less than that. It's hard. Um, but you know, like that's just been kind of luck, uh, in that, um, you know, if I needed 10 hours of sleep a night, it would suck. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do, I wouldn't be able to do this. I'm like seven or eight. I want, you know, I wish I, I mean, it would be so, it would be kind of a luxury to need less, but I if I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, if I get eight hours of sleep, I'm, I'm in a good mood. <laughs> 
you know? Yeah, I mean, and, and some every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll like, I'll like have one of those days where I, where I just sleep till noon. Um, but most of the time, I just wake up naturally after about six hours. So it seems like that's my, my body's okay with it. And um, I was talking to somebody. <laughs> I was at, I was at the Port Townsend Writers Conference, and I was talking to somebody, and they're like, you know, wait another 10 years and see how that works for you. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I guess as, as you, as you get, as you, as you move into old age, your body won't, won't tolerate it. But I, I don't know. I'm, I think maybe it might be, maybe I'll, I'll be different. Well, my parents are that way. I mean, my parents can, you know, my, they go to bed at about 11, wake up at five every morning. Like, you know, I don't even think they have an alarm. It's crazy, but I didn't, wow. get, I didn't get that. <laughs> you know, like, I used to say that I had it and I think I just wanted it. And then I started to realize like, I feel like shit. And like, uh, you know, I think when you're, if you, like, like you said, six is your kind of like magic number, but if you get less than that, it doesn't work that well. I think if you're under rested and you go to look at your own work, it affects everything. Like your work, even, you know, you have a hard time evaluating its quality. Things look worse than they actually are, or you have a tendency to see them as such. Yeah. So, yeah, that may, that may be, so, uh, and what about you, um, you know, you starting out writing stories and then transitioning to the novel. I think there's a lot of people listening who are probably, um, you know, looking to make that transition or struggling to make that transition. Uh, can you talk? It was, it was really horrible for me. Um, I wrote a whole, I wrote a whole no novel that I had to, that, that really had to be thrown away or it was actually, it sort of got broken up into pieces and turned into short stories. Um, but you know, I, the only reason I did it was because um, my agent had this had this um, you know two book contract that he that, that he got me into, so I had a short story collection and then a, then a novel and so and then I had an editor who was like, okay, we're going to do this, um, and he really like really held my hand through the whole thing and and, and walked me through it step by step, um, and if I hadn't had that editor, I, I would probably still be working on that two book contract. Um, because I had no idea how to go about it. Right, and this was, was um, this Dan Smetanka? Or my pronoun? It was Dan Smetanka. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what yeah, did, and he's he's a counterpoint now. Yeah. So what exactly did he do? Because, you know, what what's the what was the lesson, you know, from in terms of like the architecture of a longer work and Well, I mean, I sent I I sent him the opening uh that uh, that I thought was going to be a novel and he was like, "Oh, no, no." And then he just went through and circled all these things. He's like, Okay, dramatize this, dramatize this, dramatize this, <laughs> and then we'll talk. Um, so I did, you know, I, I, I started dramatizing these scenes that, that, I, that I had all written in summary, pretty much. Um, and uh, from there, we, you know, then, we, then, then he was like, okay, well, um, you know, um, keep doing this and, and, you know, send me, send me a, you know, like I was sending him a chapter every two weeks, I think. Um, and then he and he would basically annotate the chapter, send it back to me, and then I I would sort of push forward. And then and you know as we went along, we talked about things like you know what needs to happen, what's what what needs to happen plot wise, um, whether you know was the character sort of deepening and all of that kind of thing that I, I really needed help with. Well, so. that's, that sounds lovely. And, you know, what it makes me think of, there's an essay that's, you know, circulating on the internet right now by, uh, I, th I believe it's Joshua Wolfshank. He's talking about creative pairs and how it's very, like the, like the, the myth of like the solo genius is, you know, a myth in, in terms of his argument. Right. 
And, you know, the more that I think about it, I think there's something to that. And obviously the bulk of the work is coming from the author, um, but whether it's a spouse or a close friend, whoever that first reader is, your agent, you know, or if you have an editor who's really invested in helping you like tease the thing to life, uh, it's hard. You can't just do it on your own, you know? And No, but no. I mean, a, and I, and I, that's, I, I think I, um, I've been really, really lucky in, in that I've, I've found people all, all the way along in my life who are you know, great collaborators and great readers, um, and who are willing to, to, um, you know, give me encouraging feedback as opposed to, you know, I think sometimes, sometimes, um, there's the, I think a lot of people have the, have, uh, sort of the dysfunctional pair, um, where, where they have somebody that, that's, that seems to, that seems to slow their writing down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, because you, know, you say that it's good to have the encouraging feedback, but sometimes you need somebody to help you see the light. Um, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, that too. But it's got to be in the right way. It's got to be in a way that doesn't totally yeah. de- deflate you. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, before I let you go, I want to ask because this is kind of a, a you know a, a good place to transition to teaching, um, which I know you uh-huh. do at Oberlin. Um, you know, I've, I've, I think I've interviewed more than one of your students, uh, you know, Oh, wow. That's cool. I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, you've, you've had a lot of people in your, in your classes through the years who have published books. Um, yeah. So yeah. what do you get from that? Like, you know, obviously you give a lot and obviously you're helping people, but you know, I've taught before and there are days you walk out of there and you're like, God, I learned a lot <laughs> or, you yeah, know, no, absolutely. So how does it, I mean, I think that the, the, I mean, I think the thing is with teaching creative writing, um, and many students don't believe this, but it, but, but you're basically talking about the same issues that, that you yourself are facing, you know, like the, the issues don't change. Like, how do you write a good sentence? How do you, um, make a compelling character? What, what, how do you, how do you create forward movement in, in a story? All those things are things that, you know, you never really completely learn. And so I think it's, it's a, it's really powerful for me to, to be in a, in a group of people who are all talking about this stuff and all really care about it. Yeah. Um, and that's the great thing about Oberlin is that, you know, um, these are really mostly really mature kids and they really, they really do care about what they're about, about their, about their schooling and they care about their writing. And, you know, I could spend, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, sitting there talking to kids about this stuff. Um, I don't, but <laughs> I could. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a really good school. How did you wind up there? By accident, again. Um, you know, I was I was um, living in Cleveland, and they needed a one semester replacement for somebody. Um, and uh, I so I, I I was there for one semester, and then the person ended up leaving. So I got I I, I sort of like got kept getting hired as a as a visiting person. And finally, I had wormed my way in enough and, and, and like dug my hooks in that they that they gave me a full time job. Wow. Um, but it was all just sort of chance that it happened. Wow. And so what are you working on now? Um, I got a novel that is due in November. It won't be finished, but um, I'm trying to get as close as I can. And, you know, my editor is um, is uh, lighting a fire underneath me. So I'm like the next few months are going to be really super intense. Um, like I'll be writing 
hopefully like eight to ten hours a day and and getting and just cranking out the rest of this novel. Um, I'm about two hundred pages in. Wow. Like use um, like usable pages or like how does it go? Like do you write like five hundred and use two hundred or is it? Yeah, something like that. Okay. You know, I mean, there's 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 a there's a lot of non-usable stuff, but um, you never know what's going to be usable and what's not. And it's you know like even the stuff that you don't use informs the informs the like it's it's the it's the it's the rest of the iceberg that nobody sees. Right. Sure. Um, and you know, so I love that. I, I love just just um, producing lots of stuff so that I have this really um, like expansive sense of the world that I'm writing about. Even if you know, even if most of it doesn't end up in the in, in the book, um, I feel like I know the world really well, and so I can dip in there anytime I want. And I can still, I mean, if if I if I want to sit down and go back to the world of a way you reply or or you remind me of me, it, it's, it's all still there. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, it did that, that world doesn't disappear. Um, I haven't checked in with those people in a long time, but, um, I feel like I could really easily. Well, and so, and any hints on what this new novel's about? I mean, can you something, can you give us a one? Um, yeah, it, I mean, well, <laughs> it's like really hard to explain. Um, I, I call it a pre-apocalyptic novel. Um, cause the, nothing, nothing, Nothing world-ending happens, but it feels like the world is about to end. Um, and it's got um, it's got a serial killer in it. It's got some Satanists. Um, it's got uh, it's, it's got some it's got some major drug use. Uh, it's got a dad who's losing his mind. So you know, basically the same as I've always written about. <laughs> well, uh, I look forward to except it. for this. I've never I've never done a serial killer, so that that'll be fun. Awesome. Well, um, I, and yeah, and, and and one of my sons said, "How 1990s, Dad?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, but fuck that." Yeah. Well, I wish you well it's on it. Time. I wish you well on yeah. it, and uh, I really have enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll look forward to the new book when it's all set to roll out. Yeah. Let's say. Let's say. Let's say 15 or 16. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's Dan Sean. You can find him online at danshawn.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at danshawn. I do not believe he has a Twitter bot. I think it's actually him. And uh, he is not hallucinating currently. You can also find him, at least, as far as I know. <laughs> you can find Dan online on uh, Facebook as well, and I think he also has a Tumblr. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. Do you know what that is? It's the best way to listen to this show. It's free, and it's available wherever apps are available. You download the app to your device, uh, and then the most recent 50 episodes you can listen to for free. They're right there. And then every time there's a new episode, it automatically uploads to the app, so you don't have to do anything. It's automated. makes it easy on you. And then... Uh, if you want to stream the rest of the episodes, the full archives, you can sign up for premium right there in the app. It's very cheap. $2 a month or 5 bucks for six months or $9 for a full year of access. You can listen to my conversations with uh, George Saunders, Tom Parada, Cheryl Strayed, Susan Orlean, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Lethem. There's a whole slew. The app is chock full of content. So go get the app, sign up for premium, support the show. That would be awesome. 
Go follow me at Twitter. You can follow the show at other PPL. And if you want to follow me and my uh, hallucinating Twitter bot, the handle is at Brad Listy. I have no idea if it's a good if it's a good idea, <laughs> or if I've somehow done something very foolish. I think part of me wonders if like the bot will be more popular than I was. You know, like does it even matter? You just can spit out some weird stuff as long as you're constantly tweeting. People just want something to read, something that makes them feel strange. I don't know. It's a little bit strange, the whole concept of outsourcing your uh, personal communications to a robot. Please remember that Hugo Wolf died mad and that Callus died in Paris of a heart attack. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks to Dan Sean for being such a great guest. Go get his books. Buy them all in one purchase with a credit card. Do it. Go into debt. It's worth it. It will uh, enrichen. Enrichen? Enliven? You know what I mean. I'll be back again soon with episode number 300. 300 of these things. Can you believe it? Who's it going to be? You want to know, don't you? Should I tease it here? Should I do it? (laughs) 